I'm going to read a little scripture and tell a long story. <laughs> Today's lessons are about Abram, who became the father of nations, and Sarai, who became Sarah, and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac, and oh my goodness, it's about all of that. It's a handmaid's tale today. A handmaid's tale. But this piece right here is in Genesis 16, focused on Hagar. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave Hagar to his husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. When Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. <coughs> your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated her. The angel of the Lord saw Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And God said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she said. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is the word of God. For the people of God, thanks be to God. Kind of. Amen. Now, it will not shock you that I have a hermeneutic of suspicion a lens of suspicion about this text. It might shock you to think that I believe it is my Jesus-bound duty to have a hermeneutic of suspicion about this text. Let me tell you more about the story. You know the story. Most of us know this story, but let me just say it in a kind of Jackie womanist, modern sense kind of way. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God says to Abraham, I have a plan for your life, a thing we're going to do. You are going to be the father of many 
children, many nations. There'll be so many people coming from the fruit of your loin that you will not be able to count them. And Abraham was like, bet. That sounds great. God says, in order to make this happen, I need you to get up, get your things, get your silver, get your gold, get your wood, get your people, get your other wives. Get your stuff, your horses, your camels. Let's go. We're going to go to a new land. And this is where this is going to take place. So Abraham gets up and he goes. And there's like, you know, fun with Abraham across time. Um, but he marries a beautiful woman named Sarai. And she's so beautiful that there's a time in the life of Abraham when he pretends like Sarai is not his wife and that's his sister. And I'm not sure why he thought that was helpful, but he did. <laughs> anyway, in the midst of the promise of progeny, in the midst of the promise of progeny, uh, Sarah's old, guys, and so is Abraham. They are past prime time, and Sarah's infertile. And God continues to make this promise. He makes it. One writer in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, writes, God makes the promise to Abraham. God also makes the promise to Sarai. When God makes the promise to Sarai, she laughs in God's face. She's like, what? <laughs> there's not going to be any babies coming from me. And because she laughs, there's kind of like tension between her and God. God's like, God's like you were laughing. She's like, uh-uh, I wasn't laughing. But she's, it's God, dude. She, he knows you were laughing. So she was laughing, and she and God have a little tension. And we're going to find out that Isaac's name means God laughed. So there's a beautiful etymology of the root of Isaac's name. Anyway. Keeping it moving, the Sarah and Abraham fertility plan is not working. The, this, is, this predates the time for putting things in petri dishes, but they're doing all the things. Whatever the ancient Israel things, they're doing them. But there's no baby that happens. There's no baby that happens. And, you know, it's hard to believe your old body can make a baby if it's not happening. So Sarah believes that there's maybe another way to do this, that God has another plan in mind, and enter Hagar into the story. Hagar, who's been purchased in Egypt, Hagar, who belongs to Sarah and Abraham, like their cows and their silver, um, belongs to them. And Sarah believes that it is her right to take that woman and give that woman, that human being, to her husband to impregnate so that the baby can come. Are you with me? Doesn't that sound lovely? Um, somebody somewhere is saying it was God's will. Somebody somewhere is saying Sarah was listening for the will of God and it was the will of God. It was the will of God for Hagar to be a tool in this making of the baby. I say Sarah and, ha and Abraham were impatient with God. And they couldn't imagine that God could be the miraculous baby maker that God turned out to be. So they took matters in their own hands and they put Hagar in the role of handmaid. Do you know Margaret Atwood's book? Do you know the TV show? Do you know how this went, how it went down? Like how it likely went down? Is it likely Sarah's in the baby making room? That's all I'm gonna say, there's children in the room. And you know, watching and being in hard part of it and all the things, and then Hagar conceives, and then the baby belongs to who? The baby belongs to Sarah. And the part of the text I read is that Hagar then feels so resentful. 
I mean, not just because she's pregnant, but she's not free. She doesn't belong to herself. She belongs to these people. And she's pregnant with the heir to all the stuff. I'd get an attitude, wouldn't you? You can't make a baby, and I just did. I'm still beholden to you. The text says it's Abraham's wife, but it's not really his wife. It's really a kind of concubine-type moment uh, to be used. So Sarah's angry, and, and she puts Hagar out into the wilderness. Now, this is the part of the text that I just want to punch around a little bit. Like, Sarah owns Hagar. Abraham done made Hagar his other woman, perhaps even giving her jewelry and perfume and stuff. I don't know, when things go well, right? But he's pleased that she's pregnant, yet Hagar is a tool and disposable tool at that to be put out of doors because her attitude does not line up with servitude and beholdenness and whatever all you're supposed to feel when you are a slave and you get pregnant with the heir. They put her outside. They put her out into the wilderness. Dolores Williams, womanist theologian who died last November, wrote a book called Sisters in the Wilderness, and she spends a lot of time thinking about the theology that's at work in this story. God tells Hagar through an angel to go back into bondage. I want you to just think about that for just a minute. How many women do you know in your life who've been in abusive relationships? Give me a small finger, like a Baptist type. How many, of, how many women do you know who've been in abusive, violent relationships and had to stay there in order to survive? How many women do you know, how many black women do you know? How many black women do you know who've had to put up, shut up, sit down, be quiet, hang in, don't stand up for themselves in order to make their family work out in an oppressive white system. How many of you imagine the God of liberation would tell them to go back into the painful place in order to survive? I'm not saying they didn't do it. Do you imagine God saying, go back into the place of torture and pain so you can survive? I don't imagine it. I imagine that I might make that choice. I imagine that I might think it's the only choice I have to make. But I can't work for a God who would say, in order for you to be OK, go back into the torture chamber. That's my hermeneutic of suspicion. I'm just saying I don't think so. But I think. Our ancestors, I think the writers of the text, I think the people who listened to the story probably heard Hagar's story, heard her say, oh my goodness, I was out in the wilderness crying underneath the tree, and I felt like the angel of God saw me and the baby crying, because that's what she said. And when God saw me and the baby crying, God said, look, honey, here's some water for you. Here's some food for you. I'm going to take care of you. And God did take care of them. And then what? Did she think she would do better in the house than in the wilderness? She named God because she saw God and God saw her. Named God El Roy, the God that sees. Not the God that insists on my servitude. Not the God who demands my suffering. 
Do you feel what I'm trying to say? Not the God who believes the birth of this baby, uh-oh, Jackie, is more important than my own life. Not the God who believes that I'm a vessel for pushing life into the world and not a human being with agency and decency deserving of all the joy and love that is deserved in the world. She didn't name God. Suffering causing, colluding with systems. She didn't name God white supremacist, patriarchal garter of systems and structures. She named God the God who sees. And God saw her suffering and answered her cries, heard the cries of the baby, answered with relief and release. And systems that write scriptures that have liberation hardwired in them might not be ready for liberative word. It's our job to birth new theologies. To, can I say it again? It's our job, and the womanist theologians like Dolores Williams and Katie Cannon and Alice Walker knew that it was their job to look at the holy text and to find in the text evidence of the God who sees them, and therefore to see the God back and to name the God, God of liberation, God of seeing, God of life, God of womb, God of arms that can hold, God of milk that can nurture and feed, to see God and have a conversation with God and to be in mirrored reflection with God and to help the world see the God they saw. Can you come with me? It's our job to poke holes even in the holy texts when they smell like oppression, when they look like oppression when they seem to not communicate God's intention for the world, which is not bondage but liberation, which is not oppression but freedom, which is not your body is not your own, but rather your body is the place in which God's love lives. It's our job to wrestle with these scriptures. It's our job to wrestle with the traditions that use the scriptures to send women back into dangerous households. Because if it's good enough for Hagar, if it's good enough for Hagar to be stripped of her rights, stripped of her body, stripped of her autonomy, if God said to Hagar, you don't matter. Your black Egyptian life doesn't matter. How many of our lives seem not to matter because we won't look sideways at that text and question it? Amen? Amen. It's our job to love God with our whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, and whole strength. It's our job to look at the imprisoning, the 
restricting, the confining, the impinging, the oppressing that the word has done in the name of God and to break the shackles of these interpretations that cause pain to women, to femmes, that cause pain to the poor, to the out, outsider, that cause pain to our queer family, that cause pain to the non-Christian, to the Jew, to the Muslim, that cause pain in the name of love because we won't do our job, which is to keep listening to the still speaking God and to ask ourselves always, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> and to say, as boldly as Tina would sing it, if it doesn't have to do with love, it doesn't have to do with God. It's kind of a simple litmus test. What's love got to do with that law? What's love got to do with that policy? What's love got to do with that interpretation? What's love got to do with 13 states, 17 states? What's the count? So, how many? Too many. Laws against abortion, like these people care about those children. They don't care about those children. They just care about managing somebody's body. And believe you me, in the rooms where the policies are being made, this is the kind of text that's in the backdrop saying, see, see what bodies are for? Understand this handmaid's tale? Applies anytime, anywhere the system wants to crush freedom and liberation. You can find a scripture That'll justify it. Our job is to find the scriptures that point to love. Our job is to interrogate every text of terror through the lens of love. Our job is to ask ourselves, what's love got to do with it? Because God is love. Period. And everything else is commentary, and sometimes it's not that right. As in it's not that just. As in it's not that holy because it doesn't make us whole. Come on, somebody. This is our job. I love the notes I get about how wicked our church is. It makes me feel so proud. Those wicked people with all those queer people in there, I'm like, that's right. <laughs> Those wicked people with the women talking, that's right. Those wicked people with their mixed up racial craziness, just like mixed fabrics. Not supposed to do it, not supposed to mix it up. But here we are in our spanks, uh -huh, loving on God and loving on each other. Right? <laughs> it's joyful to make those people crazy. And it's not just my job, y'all, right? It's not just Amanda's, Mira's, Natalie's, Ben's. It's your job. <coughs> That's allergy. COVID is gone. It's your job to be in the mind of, 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 of is there enough? Yeah, thank you. 
It's your job, thank you, Mayor. It's your job to be in the study. It's your job to come to the Bible studies on Monday. It's your job to go to Bible in the Middle. It's your job to own a Bible. Do you own a Bible? It's because, you know, Bibles, you know, we're here now, right? Where's the Bible, right? But it's your job to have a Bible with a little bit of a lexicon, a little bit of a study. Ask yourself, what does that word mean? Where'd that come from? It's your job. It's your job to not let us spoon feed you anything. <laughs> it's your job to be inquisitive, to be a theologian in residence in your own life. That's your job. That's your job. And so I'm going to just suggest a couple, three things, and I'm going to close. One, the King James Version is just not that good. <laughs> King James was kind of evil and stank and mean and had people write a Bible that he, he thought would be lovely because he was stank and mean and evil. So, and plus, what is it thou livest? And like, can you really understand it? Okay. So understand that God did not speak in the King James English. Jesus did not speak in the King James English. Neither Moses, nobody else, nobody else speaks in the King James English. So let it go. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. Let go of the King James Version and get another one. If you want to keep it, because it's like, reminds you of your grandmother. I, I have mine. It's got red letters and like gold leaf and whatever. That's cool. But get another one, okay, to study. Um, NIV, NRSV is new version. Get one and get one with some little indexes so you can look up stuff. Get a Bible that works for you too. Read it. Okay. I know sometimes we think a book works if we just. <laughs> but let's read it. Somebody said, let's read it. Let's read it. Let's read it. Three, we have lots of opportunities to learn because we want you to be theologians and residents in your life. So come. Like, right? Come. Sunday's great. Put a little extra, just put, a little, put one more on it, especially during Lent, right? Let this be a time in your life when you're going to get to know God better, where you, like Hagar, will be able to see God sees me, because they do, and God loves me, because they do, and then you'll be just having a little conversation with God, and you'll be intimate, and you'll know more, and you'll believe more how much God wants your liberation and freedom. And not only, not only yours, but ours, everybody's. That's it. That's all I have. We don't need, we don't need Handmaid's Tales. We don't need, we don't need queer people outside of church. We don't need women making babies that they don't want to have. What? Are you kidding me? We don't need to backslide from liberation and joy and freedom because the fascists are on fire with hatred and bigotry. We need love to liberate us and everybody. And the way we get to love liberating us and everybody is we interrogate every theological construct through the lens of love. Every day, every day, all the time. That's the tale we want to tell. God's love at work in the universe. Amen. <laughs>